Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Brian Kirk. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm C.W. Lassart. And you have tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is a no-holds-barred literary love fest. An opportunity to sit down with some (laughs) amazing creators and dig through the gray matter as we explore their craft in our never-ending quest to improve our own. Literary love fest. Fest. I love that. This is, you see, Karen, you're taking this whole to a whole new level, and I'm loving you for it. Friends, if that voice sounds familiar, you may remember her from her fabulous roundtable dialogues with the Grim Mistresses. Uh, uh, we had so much fun with that. We brought her back as a guest host, and she was a fabulous guest host. So basically, she's making the rounds to every possible chair. The only thing you haven't done, Karen, is pitched a story. So at some point, we need to have you come back as a guest writer, and you will have literally sat in every chair here at the roundtable. I have something to shoot for. <laughs> Indeed. Ma'am, thank you so much. I am so looking forward to this this interview and this 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 general uh, literary love fest we're about to dive into. Thank you so much for making the time. Oh, thank you for having me again. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, let me... Karen, sit back, relax. What What is your libation of choice, if I may ask? I am drinking coffee at the moment. Very good. Well, warm that sucker up. Sit back, relax. Let me, let me introduce you to our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With. Now, Karen, do you remember the first time you told a story? I do. Do you really? I Okay, I don't. I, I, and I consider that, you know, that's that's kind of a landmark event. I wish I did. But uh, uh, just real quick, what was it? Just out of curiosity, what was the story? Oh, I don't remember the story, but I remember as a small child always making up stories for my friends. <laughs> Very good. Yes, absolutely. Well, and, you know, you share something in common with our guest host. Uh, he actually remembers the first story he told. Uh, it was in the first grade, and the teacher had everyone sitting around in a circle taking turns making up a story as they went around. And, and it was a, a story about going on a field trip, and one kid had them waving at cows, and another one had them singing a song. You know, it was first grade, pretty conventional stuff. Everybody was pretty bored until it was our guest host's turn. His contribution was to have the bus get a flat tire and crash into the side of the road where a man with a sawed-off shotgun (laughs) boards the bus and mayhem ensues. And phone calls to parents. Yes, yes, absolutely. The teacher is freaking out, demanding, pass the story, pass the story. (laughs) But no one was bored anymore. Now, I'm guessing that experience left a mark on the teacher. Uh, But it definitely was a transformative event for our guest host. This was exciting stuff, and he wanted more. Now, you'd think that that first-grade storytelling adventure would have marked him forever in the education institution. But in the fifth grade, one of his teachers was instrumental in getting him into print for the first time when she submitted a poem he had written as homework to a national scholastic competition. Our guest host was one of the winners, and his poem was published in a book along with all the other winners from across the country. 
Now, his mom and dad had split up when he and his sister were very young. And his mom, at 26, mind you, with no work skills to speak of, did everything she could to make sure her family was cared for and happy. And as a kid, our guest host apparently was pretty darn happy. Uh, He wouldn't go anywhere without a book in his hands. During downtime in class, when the other kids were talking or messing around, he'd be reading. And I'm sure none of our listeners can at all relate to that particular scenario. Uh, He read a lot of choose-your-own-adventure books. Eventually, as he matured, progressing to Stephen King and Dean Koontz, he watched cartoons like He-Man, Scooby-Doo, and the fabulous Thundercats, which fully establishes his street cred here at the roundtable, let me tell you, because we're big Thundercats fans. Uh, And he feasted on 80s comedies like Police Academy and Caddyshack. Uh, He rocked in English and hated math, and amid the sports and the skateboarding and building forts in the woods with his friends, our guest host continued to explore different forms of storytelling. He he never got into role-playing games, but he did have a rich fantasy life which featured him as an advanced war commando with a high kill count. And then, one day when he was eight, he experienced genuine terror. He and his sister were in their home with a babysitter when someone began banging and shaking on the big front doors trying to get in. Now, the would-be intruder then moved around the house, skulking around the back gate. Nobody was hurt, and and whoever it was eventually went away. But imagine that experience on an eight-year-old boy. It left its mark on this young writer and gave him an insight into terror that would inform his stories to come. But storytelling, it's just frivolous fun, right? It's it's just an idle pastime that would have to eventually be set aside in the name of getting a real job and eventually a career. Yeah, we all went through that vicious cycle, too. Now, in in our guest host's case, the assumption on his father's part, who was living in California at the time, was that our guest host would attend his alma mater, Abilene Christian University, a tiny fundamentalist Christian college in Abilene, Texas. Now, my reaction to that announcement, with all due respect to to ACU, would be, holy crap, Uh, which is pretty much, I'm guessing, our guest host's reaction, too. He did some research and found Pepperdine University in Malibu, about 45 minutes from where his father lived. They negotiated and made it happen. He studied advertising, which was a bit creatively claustrophobic for him. So he transferred to the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, and eventually graduated with a degree in marketing in the year 2000. But, you know, we've all heard that analogy of writing being like an addiction, like like a drug you can't put down. Throughout his college experiences and into the professional world, our guest host felt the writing monkey on his back. And he did take a creative writing course in college and a writing course at Emory College in Atlanta. Now, that last one was a tipping point for him. He decided he'd try submitting some of his work. He got rejected. A lot. 
at least in the literary arena. Romantically, apparently, he was doing okay because in 2004, he married the love of his life. And then a few years later, his stories started to get published, appearing in Sinister Tales, Necrotic Tissue, and even in Something Wicked magazine, where his story, No Longer Alone, was reprinted in the imprint's annual anthology. In 2012, he secured his first pro-rate sale for Groomsmen, a tale of a man with trichophagia, which is a compulsion to eat hair. Uh, This appeared in the now-defunct Horror on the Installment Plan. This was followed by Doors Best Unopened, appearing in Bards and Sages Quarterly in 2013, and Seeds of Change in the Dead Harvest Anthology in 2014. Now, at this point, I think it's important that you understand something about our guest host. He's dealt with OCD all his life, a condition which produces chronic anxiety, negative thought loops, and periods of depression. To struggle with and overcome that kind of challenge where your own mind feels like it's working against you and achieve the vaunted holy grail of publication is nothing short of heroic. It was this very condition, in fact, that inspired him to contemplate a novel, something that explored mental disorders and the various prejudices and misunderstandings of it in our society. He researched the idea further, going so far as to meet with the director of a mental institution at Emory, and the story began to take shape. Then, in 2014, he took a huge leap and flew from Atlanta to Portland to make a 10-minute pitch to Don D'Aria at the World Horror Convention. D'Aria is the executive editor at Sowen Publishing and recipient of the International Horror Guild Award for his contributions to the genre. The pressure was on, the pitch went well, and D'Aria requested a manuscript. Two weeks later, our guest host received a contract offer, which he greeted not with elation and dancing, but with the neurotic insecurity he had been dealing with all his life. But he recognized the symptoms. He knew the cure. Write the damn story. And he did. Last month, his novel, We Are Monsters, hit the stands and has been receiving radiant accolades from Jonathan Moore, former RTP guest host Mercedes Yardley, Scarlet's Web, horror novel reviews, and more. His favorite movies are Weird Science and The Big Lebowski. As a kid, he was taught knife fighting by his wrestling coach. He studied gymnastics to learn how to backflip, thinking it would be an intimidating opening move if he ever got into a serious fight. He's a big fan of chocolate ice cream with chocolate stuff in it, and I'm down with that too. Uh, And he's the father of five-year-old identical Twin boys, the rarest form of human offspring. This is appropriate given that he's almost certainly the rarest form of storytelling awesomeness we've had on the show. Dear friends, please welcome to the big chair here at the round table, Brian Kirk. Brian, dude, you've got a book that just came out last month. I can only imagine the frothing mayhem that is your life right now. So, Dude, I really appreciate you making the time. Thanks for joining yeah, us. Well, thank you. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. But second of all, I need you to do that every day. 
I want that to be my new alarm clock. I want to wake up. I <laughs> that recording. I swear to God, I'm gonna I'm gonna somehow find a way to put. I'm gonna wake up to that every day. That'll get you out of bed, won't it? I'd be like, damn, I am awesome. Yes. I'm pretty moved listening to that. It was, it was uh, my first. Uh, you know, this is my life. There you go. Myself, right. And I was waiting for people to walk through. Uh, that was actually really moving. Uh, Thank you so much for doing. You're that. a gentleman, sir. You're a gentleman. Thank you. Well, look, let's 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 dive into this. I don't want to bandy words or, or mince about. Let's get into our 20 minutes with Brian Kirk. I'm going to go ahead and set the clock and we'll ignore it because we don't need no stinking clocks here at the round table. <laughs> Brian, uh, let me let me ask you this right up front. Um, from the intro and, and from other interviews, it's, it's very clear that uh, you respond to acceptance letters very differently than than most writers uh and there's there's a, there's a bit of dread there and i know that that's part of the the, the ocd thing but I, I get the impression that there's more that motivates you to write than just to get published and so on and so forth so i'm, I'm curious wh- what is it about writing that that drives you to the keyboard every single day to work on your work actually it's interesting that you say that my reaction is di- i would love to poll uh, authors and find out if they have a similar reaction to mine when they get that acceptance letter. Because I've talked to a few, and it, it seems like when you really get down to it, they feel many of them feel the same way. And I'll explain what that is. So, it, well, at least from my point of view, you start out deciding you want to, you know, submit your work for publication. Right. And then, in my case, you receive a couple hundred rejection letters. <laughs> You're not alone in that, I'm sure. Right. So this tension begins to build up, you know, this kind of craving for validation. And mm-hmm. every time you write a new story and you feel like it's better and you feel like, you know, and you, 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 the rejections start getting maybe a little bit more personalized, you feel like you're on the brink. It just th- there's this energy build that starts to, to come up. And, uh, you know, my, I would have thought that once I finally received that acceptance that there just would have been this eruption, you know, of, of <laughs> just, just release and this, this joy and this affirmation, it would just explode, but it didn't, you know what? It was more like a kid's cap gun went off, you know, it just, <laughs> it just kind of, you know, not, not the big explosion you were anticipating. Huh? No, it wasn't, you know, and, and it's been like that with every subsequent acceptance, even all the way up to my most recent, which was very recent. And, you know, even with the acceptance of my, um, my debut novel. And so I didn't really know what to make of that, but I, as I've kind of thought more about it, I, I think it's a good thing. And it's, I think it's while surprising, it's, it, I'm, I'm happy that that's the case. Cause what that says to me is I, I, I find more joy in the work than I do the results. Yeah. And, this is kind of a, a wonky uh, crapshoot business in many ways in that I can't always control the results. The, there are so many variables outside my control in terms of, you know, especially when it comes to the slush pile. You know what I mean? Finding the right person at the right time with the right story. You never know how much attention they're paying. You know, you don't know. There's just too much out there. And if you, so if you, if you put all of your sense of success in, in, in the results, I think you're setting yourself up for a lot of disappointment. Sure. But if, sure. If you find the, the, the juice in the, in the work and every day you sit down to write that that's where the charge is for me, like that charge that I thought was going to get from 
the acceptance, I actually do get it. I just get it every day I write. <laughs> or both days I write, you know? And what is that juice, Brian? What What is it that, you know, I, I, there's a lot of things that, that you could probably get juice from, or maybe not, but, but <laughs> sure. there, there's there's something that there in the writing, in the telling of stories, uh, of crafting characters, of, of fabricating these these worlds, and in your case, these horrors, uh, uh, what is it that, that drives you to do that? I, I think it all comes down, I think everyone strives to achieve what's called a flow state and you know athlete like michael jordan would talk about it you know and i'm not comparing myself to michael jordan but <laughs> you know whenever someone is doing what it seems to be what they seem called to do they seem to slip into this flow state where where time disappears where the sense of self disappears where where everything just harmonizes you know in michael jordan's instance the, the basket just became enormous. There's no way he could miss. <laughs> you know, in mine, it's just going back to the OCD that you, you know, yeah, my, my whole life I've, I've, I've kind of had this OCD condition, which in my case kind of has like a, just a real high baseline of generalized anxiety that, that, you know, I just tolerate. And it, you know, it, it has periodic times of really negative thought patterns. You know what I mean? They're just, that, you know, it's just like having an annoying person chirping into your ear that you have to ignore. God, and, I cannot well, imagine. I cannot imagine. <laughs> but, but writing is the remedy for that for me. It's when I'm writing, I feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And, and that's the only that's the thing that most reliably allows me to slip into that flow state where you just feel kind of peaceful and you're doing the thing you're supposed to do. Sure. And I crave that. I mean, that's a drug for me, you know. And to be honest, it's similar to taking a drug. I mean, you can certain psychedelics create a similar state. And for Writing else. is a drug. <laughs> yes, it is. It's definitely a euphoric feeling when you're on and it's just flowing out your hands. It's euphoric. Yeah. You, feel, you feel like you're connected to something much greater than yourself. It's a religious experience to some, I would imagine. Uh, I think it's far more mysterious than we when we often give it credit to. I and agree. It, you know, I think that can cheese some people off and they're like, you know, they, you know, it, it is what it is. It is what it is to, to each individual. But yeah, I, I feel like it's... There's a there's something more to it than just dredging out, uh, you know, firing synap brain synapses and, and dredging up, you know, the subconscious. I mean, all those things are just words anyway. You know, and who knows what the subconscious is? The sure. subconscious is basically a, a term we've applied to something we don't understand. Yeah, it's like quantum physics. It's there, yeah. but we're not real sure. Well, let, let me pose a question to to both Brian and to you, Karen. As long as I got both of you on the line, uh, <laughs> what what do you guys do to facilitate that that fugue state, that that zone, or 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 do you, or is it, or is it just? pure random happenstance. Brian, we'll, we'll start with you. Is there anything that you do to, to get into that zone? Yeah. Uh, what I, uh, I rely on routine. So I kind of consider that zone. I consider all my best writing comes from a, that fugue state. Uh, I think that's a good term for it. That's kind of like a, um, it's a trance or it's like a waking dream state. And so I liken it to actually falling asleep and having a dream. Uh, the best way to fall asleep is to kind of have a regular sleep schedule. You know, you go to bed, sure. you kind of have your bedtime ritual. You know, you, you go to bed around the same time. Maybe you read a little bit before you go to bed. You have these same patterns that allow you to kind of slip into, to, you know, fall asleep, which is pretty mysterious in itself, uh, quickly and easily, you know, and that's where the dreams come from. Um, so I write at the same time every day. I write from the same place most every day. 
you know, I, I, as much uh, routine and pattern as I can replicate, it seems it, it prepares my, I guess, myself to slip into that fugue state. And it seems to be when I adhere to that routine, that happens more often than not. Okay. All right. I can totally see that. And and also there's, there's things you don't have to worry about because this is in place and that is in place and boom, 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 boom. It liberates a lot of that conscious awareness. That makes perfect sense. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Brian Kirk after this brief promotional break. 200 years into the future, mankind has conquered the solar system. Humanity has entered a new era of peace and exploration, but a looming threat could spell the end of everything. The fate of civilization rests in the hands of an unlikely hero. Um, excuse me, hero? You know, I've been called a lot of things over the years. Criminal, con artist, traitorous bitch. But hero? Well, yes, but they were being sarcastic. This is the story of how I saved the universe. Space Casey is an audio drama miniseries from Christiana Ellis. Subscribe now at www.spacecasey.com. You'll love it. Trust me. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Brian Kirk. Karen, what about you? Uh, uh, is there anything that you do to, to facilitate getting in the zone? Uh, yeah, I'd say I'm almost the opposite of Brian. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> there usual. are many processes, many processes. Yeah. I, uh, in order for me to get there, I have to completely shut everything else off in my head, which always has, you know, 800 different boxes open. You know, I'm, I'm a lot of pages open on my screen, running the pub and kids <laughs> and dogs and 8,000 other pets in my menagerie. And a lot of times what it takes for me is something as simple as a bath or a long drive around town, you know, something that allows me to just open up and kind of quiet all the other noise in my life. And then I'll try to just focus on something small and random. I'll see something and I'll think, I wonder why that is, you know, what is this guy walking down the road? what's he doing? What's he thinking about? What's, what's in his basement? You know, <laughs> <laughs> of course, that's where you go. <laughs> How yeah. many people has he killed today? Hmm. Is he thinking about killing? Someone? Yeah. What if, where's his wife? Does he have a wife? I mean, really random stuff that has nothing to do with the target that I look at, but it's how I kind of start putting into process I don't know. I make the gears move that sure. way. You awaken the storyteller inside of you. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Very cool. See, two very different things. But ultimately, I think if you look at both of them, it's kind of creating this this other space. Karen, you're you're disconnecting from uh, uh, the the hustle and bustle of the daily thing, creating that dare I say sacred space of creativity. And Brian, with the the ritual and the habitual events of this, this, and this, you're creating almost uh, again sort of a sacred space. And this is where the mojo happens. In kind of the same way. That's fascinating. I, and I think it makes sense that we're different because, Brian, with the OCD, I know that ritual would be very important, right? Mm, yeah, I didn't 
That makes sense. Yeah, that's a good See, observation. Very good. Everybody sits on the couch and we will talk about our mothers. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's all these different entry points. That's what's so fascinating about it. You know, to, to basically what's this, the same thing, which is quieting that surface chatter. You know, that's, I think that's what we all are trying to, to accomplish. It's just, yeah, we all have our own methods of doing so. It's sure. pretty cool. Sure. That is. That is. Uh, Karen, did you have a question for Brian? Uh, yeah, I had noticed on his website that he's had the opportunity to interview several authors. And I was just wondering, what has Brian taken away from this interviewing process, from the meeting these authors? What, mm. what has he learned from getting to know the people in the horror community? Good question. Mm. To be honest, I, as part of this tour to promote, uh, you know, We Are Monsters, uh, I think I've been the interviewee more than I have the interviewer. <laughs> um, but that's actually kind of what may lead me to the biggest takeaway, which is how kind and generous and accommodating um, the <laughs> horror writing community tends to be. I, I you know, I, I'm just starting out. I have my first book coming out and uh, I have yet to you know, encounter anyone that hasn't been anything but but open and willing to give me their time, you know, give me space on their website, uh, allow me to interview them. I mean, everyone, you know, it's it's just I don't know if there's there's not a misperception within the horror community. Everyone within the horror community, I think, understands that that's normal. I think people outside the horror community would probably be surprised to learn how friendly, positive, outgoingly <laughs> all these people are and how supportive they all are. You know, I think there's this real attitude within the community that it's not a zero sum uh, endeavor. You know, we don't steal from each other. It's like we want everyone to succeed. Just because you succeed doesn't mean I'm going to succeed less. Right. Uh, so I, th I think that's been a huge takeaway. It's just how incredibly kind and supportive these people are. I, I can echo echo that for just the genre fiction and the spec fic community in general with uh, with the roundtable, with reaching out to authors. There, there, there does seem to be this growing sense of community. And mm -hmm. and as you say, it's 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 I, I call it the infinite game. There, there's finite and there's infinite games In finite games. There's winners and losers. But in infinite right. games, it's it's making sure that everybody keeps playing and. And, and it, it feels like that's the kind of the zone we're moving into these days. I think we need it to survive, especially horror being such, I mean, let's face it, we're the redheaded stepchild of genre even. <laughs> and, you know, everyone's horror, whatever. And I feel like horror is making a big comeback because of this sense of community, because I cannot do well if people aren't reading horror. Right. And so we all need to write horror and we all need to put it out there because people and enjoy good horror. horror. Good horror. You know, good, good stories. Horror. Yes, absolutely. Well, and diverse horror. Especially as perhaps there aren't as many gatekeepers in the horror community, you know, at least like professional critics. And, you know, we don't get the, the big, you know, write-ups in, in these, ma you know, major news outlets and so forth, you know. Sure. So to, to be able to be kind of like an arbiter of taste and be able to, to push out what the good stuff, you know what I mean, and turn people onto it, I think, is helpful, you know. Yeah. Well, let me let me turn the question back around again. Uh, uh, was there anything in those interviews with those other authors, Brian, uh, uh, that that it helped inform or expand your awareness of your own writing? It's hard to say. You know, I, I think I've really only interviewed you know a couple of authors, but I, I've been fortunate to be interviewed by by several, and I think that's been uh, some. There's been a lot of self discovery, perhaps in, <laughs> in in you know answering a lot of these questions. Sure. You know, like like this, like this is you know forcing me to kind of understand my own process and how this all comes together. You know what I mean? So absolutely. I don't, I, I don't know if I can give one uh, exact moment of insight other than, you know what, it, it, 
it's just, it's an ongoing development. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think that's the case. I don't think you ever become a master at this. You know, no. I think from, from everyone I've talked to, you kind of learn, you continue to learn that there, you never reach a place of perfection. You're, you're always learning and growing and developing. Right, right. On our deathbeds, we'll we'll be we'll be <laughs> turning another chapter of Stephen King's uh, on writing. Just go, oh, damn! Okay. I need to try that in my next story. Ah, and we're dead. <laughs> <laughs> so, so talking about horror, uh, uh, and and Karen, you, I, I want you to dive in on this too. I think I might have asked you this during your uh, guest host section, but uh, let me, I'll turn this to Brian first. Um, the crafting of a horror scene. You know, scenes in general, events unfolding can have any kind of spin you want. And and it's the, the rare purview of the horror author to take a moment and make it terrifying, make it tense, make us grip the the, the spine of the book or the Kindle or whatever we're doing uh, uh, more tightly. Do you are you connected to your craft enough to understand what it is that you do to a scene or to a moment that makes it horrifying? I, I would like to think I'm I'm getting better at that. Sure, I, <laughs> I, I think I have my techniques, and again, kind of what we're, everyone's got their own techniques, and I think there are multiple ways to kind of accomplish that that same effect. Sure. Um, personally, I I I, oft, I like to use humor as. Um, a way to kind of disarm the reader and maybe set them up for something a little bit more horrific when their guards down, when, you know, uh, they've maybe bonded with, uh, you know, a, a bit of levity. And then you kind of strike, you know, horror on the heels of that. The author who I think does that most effectively, from my point of view, is Cormac McCarthy. And I don't know if you have you read The Road I have read parts of The Road. I have not read the full book. It's, it, it's I beautiful. read it. Did you? Yeah, that was the most bleak book I've ever read in my life. It is actually the only book I ever finished and refused to keep on my shelf because as a mother, it traumatized me to such a point. Let me say, brilliant writing, brilliant story. I cannot own that. Oh, I can understand that. I can completely understand that. So I guess where I think this applies, in the road, it basically follows you know a father and a boy. They're, they're rummaging across a post-apocalyptic landscape, uh, basically just searching for food and shelter. Their days become largely repetitive. You know, you kind of fall into this lull, into this rhythm of every day they're trying to scavenge food. They're, you know, they're lighting fires. They're going to sleep. The father's trying to comfort this boy who he calls a son, you know, and, and you kind of get lulled into this routine. Um, one day, you know, they're, they're going along. They find this house. doesn't have any tracks leading to or from it. So they go to check it out. You know, the ash in the fireplace is cold. It doesn't look like people have been there in some time. They go to the pantry they find this kind of hatch or this, this door that has a padlock on it. And really in this land, the only thing that would be worth locking up would be food. So they think that they've hit the jackpot, right? Mm-hmm. In Cormac McCarthy's style, it's just very dry. It's very matter of fact, nothing really, he doesn't do much foreshadowing. You know what I mean? It's just here, you're seeing what's happening. They take, you know, a pickaxe or something, they pry the lock, they open it up and walk in to discover a group of people being held captive with this guy on the floor who's had his legs severed to his hips and the stumps have been cauterized to keep him alive so that they can keep chopping off parts of him to eat. Wow. So sure enough, they found food. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> That's some not... dark humor right there. Right. But, but it's, it was the most stunning, startling scene I think I've ever read just because he did exactly what you're describing. It, it felt so mundane and yet 
once you realized what was happening, it was the most horrific thing. And then you realize the implications. You're like, okay, there are people here and the people here are sadistic cannibals and they're probably nearby, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, so, so I think that is, you know, it, I like to look at examples of how things are done well. And I would certainly, certainly select that as an example of what you're describing. Okay. Karen, what about you? When you, when you invoke the, 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 the play the horror card in your writing, uh, what are your tactics? How do you, how do you make that happen? It would be very similar to the way that I get into the mojo. Um, I like to take everyday, simple, just absolutely mundane situations and question the motives behind those who are doing it. You know, I like to think about something very simple. Uh, the man walking down the street. Right. You know, he's just a man. However, where is his wife? You know, it's, it's those same things that if I'm looking at a boy and his dog and, oh, that's so heartwarming – but what if there's something wrong with the dog? What if there's something wrong with the boy? You know, and okay. and just go beyond what we see, just picturesque life and just take any random person. You know, I work behind a bar, so I <laughs> get a people, lot of people watching opportunities. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I, I spend a lot of time looking at just ordinary people and thinking, hey, what if that guy who's whistling, you know, on his way to the bathroom, what if he just chopped his wife up <laughs> and he's come to Dempsey's pub for a pint, you know, because that's the way life works. And I think a lot of horror is just under the surface and just reaching in beyond that idyllic scene and and just plucking the motive behind it and just seeing what is causing, you know. It sounds like both of you kind of tuck your horror in behind things that we think are safe or mundane. Uh, uh, and then slowly as we move through that mundanity, that, that they're very familiar, very comfortable environment. Suddenly we discover that things are not right at all. And that's where the horror unfolds. Oh, absolutely. That I think that's why King's so massively yeah. popular is because he takes the every man he allows us familiarity with the characters and the situations so you know if something's utterly alien to you you're gonna you can still feel horror but it's gonna be less than if you feel like it could be you or someone you love sure, sure. yeah and i think that's how it happens too i think you're in the shower you know rinsing yourself off when you feel the lump yeah <laughs> right that's, yeah Right. You know, when you're the most that, vulnerable, when you're your most at ease and relaxed, like you say, Brian, with the, with the humor, uh, Stephen or not Stephen King, uh, Stephen Spielberg did the same thing with Jaws, uh, uh, made sure that you were laughing right before the shark shows up. Uh, right. So that so you drop your guard and it's like, oh, holy crap. And I remember, yeah. yes, it worked. It worked. We're, yeah. we're running out of time. I got one last question for you, Brian. Uh, uh, and I, I, I'm not sure where this is going to take us, but I, I, I hear in, in writerly discourse, when, when writers are talking, uh, they talk about the hero of the story and the protagonist of the story. And those mm. tend to be interchangeable terms. And I get the impression that your interpretation of hero and protagonist might be slightly different. How, how do you define or identify the hero for your stories? And what are those qualities that you latch onto that, that mark them as a protagonist? Yeah, that's good. I, you know, that's something I'm still developing. Um, you know, I, I, I personally uh, enjoy flawed protagonists and villains that you can sympathize with. 
there aren't really black and white. You know what I mean? Like there's sure. always shades of gray. So I always like the the messiness in those muddy waters. And I, you know, I go for that. I, I like, uh, I guess, heroes that could become villains and villains that could be, you know, <laughs> transcend to hero status. But I think hero really in a story is just whoever gets the last word, you know, and, <laughs> and that just depends on, on like kind of what your point of view is and, you know, whose mission you want to see succeed. So I think it could be kind of person, you know, it could be through the eye of the reader. I think I like stories where, where depending on who the reader is, they may have a different take on who the hero is. Nice. So you do like those shades of gray. I do. Yeah. I mean, in my most recent book, people have been very complimentary about the, the characterization, but a lot of people have struggled to find someone that they like. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> but some, you know, not everyone, you know, some people like certain people very much, you know what I mean? But, but yeah, I mean, so, so I think there is something to be said about making sure you have someone that people clearly kind of, you know, like and root for. Um, but that's just, I don't know. That just doesn't seem like real life all the time. Sure. Sure. Well, and, and like I said, that, that distinguishes you from the other writers. As you say, everybody has their own process and it's completely unique. But those perspectives, especially that one, uh, uh, is, is a unique per- perspective for, for me and for our listeners, maybe for Karen to drop into and try that on for size, uh, which I guess is kind of the mission statement for the roundtable is, is by, by delving into your process, Brian, we allow other writers to say, I hadn't thought of that. I'm going to try that on. See if that that works. So very cool. Well, guys, the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the clock has sprouted twin hypodermic needles. Uh, and oh, there's, great. you know, there's, there's menacing drip drops that are coming off of that needle like tip. And it's like, it's either time for my medication or we're out of time. I'm going to go with the latter cause I'm not ready for my medication yet. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, this has been awesome. There's been some good writerly mojo here, man. I really appreciate you making the time. Of course. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Karen, what what are you taking away from this? Because there there was, you know, that might have been like a half hour of convo, but there was some there was some good gold in there. What are you taking away? Well, first of all, I'm really looking forward to reading We Are Monsters. I <laughs> oh, yes. I love to fall in love with a loathsome character. <laughs> <laughs> You might and, be the target audience for We Are Monsters. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. And just, you know, I'm really enjoying the idea of reading some of Brian's work. Looking forward to connecting with him a little bit more. We're both members of the Horror Writers Association. So yeah. I feel like I made a friend. Very cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, and for me, that that bit at the end, talking about a protagonist that could be an anti, a hero that could be a villain, and a villain that could be a hero. That really struck a chord for me, uh, uh, and you know, I, I I tend to think of myself as as a writer who crafts these very clear, you know, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys. But there's a certain amount of appeal, and I think, as you say, Brian, authenticity to the fact that any of us at any given moment, based on our choices, could be either a hero or a villain. And I think we can all kind of relate to that. Uh, so, so that really kind of struck a chord for me. It's something I, I might take with me. So, you know, awesome stuff. Now, now speaking of awesome stuff, here's more awesome stuff, gang. We just had a great conversation with Brian and with Karen. That was that was just good mojo. Now, 
We're going to come back in seven days. In seven days from now, we're going to bring Brian back. We're going to bring Karen back. We're going to add into the mix a courageous guest writer, a creative and courageous guest writer who is going to offer up their story for workshopping with all of us. And we are going to have a brainstorm that is going to shake the pillars of heaven. So, but... That's as cool as that sounds. That's seven days away. I know that's a long time. Karen, help help our listeners out here. They, they, they don't want to wait for seven days. What can they do to make those seven days just fly by? I'm glad you asked, Dave. <laughs> My chore for you for the next seven days is to write a book, read a book, talk about a book, make love to someone who loves books as much as you do. Because <laughs> book lovers are better lovers. That's a t-shirt right there, baby. Especially the erotica readers. I can guarantee you there's going to be some experiences there. That's great advice. Yes, engage with the book world in some way, shape, or form. Writing, reading, or loving someone who loves it. So, And I will tell you, friends, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. So look for the wow. Look for the oh, hell yeah. And I promise you, if you look for it, You will find it. I will see you, heck, we'll all see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frothy, and be awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike License. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation, or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.